Welcome back to another episode of You Deserve More with Ben Motives and Jill Stilaccio. Today, we're going to be talking about addiction. So many people are struggling with addiction. And unfortunately, we have lost so many lives from this disease. Today, Jill Stilaccio is going to share her success story of recovery from addiction so you can know that there is still hope. Stay tuned. Hey, Jill, how's it going? Hey, Ben, it's going great. How are you? I'm good. You know what, Jill? A lot of people are struggling with addiction. And if you're not struggling personally, you got a loved one, a friend or a family member that's struggling with this disease. Mm -hmm. And they feel as if there is no way out. They have lost their hope and they just want to give up on life, you know? Mm -hmm. But Jill, you were able to take control over your life. You were able to conquer this disease of addiction. Mm. How did you do it? What's your story? Well, for me, I grew up in Southern New Jersey, not too far from Camden, New Jersey, and not too far from Philadelphia. And uh, those are really, really great places where you can find all kinds of drugs and all kinds of good stuff. But I was a middle child. I had an older sister, younger brother, and I always kind of felt inadequate, insecure. I struggled with anxiety from a very young age, depression from a very young age. And I think that that's kind of part of the underlying issues that mm -hmm. uh, threw me into addiction. Uh, you know, when I was young, I was a tomboy. I had a lot of fun, played a lot of sports, uh, and everything was pretty normal for the most part, but I knew that there was something off just with me personally, something internal. Mm -hmm. Um, I just didn't, you know, act like other kids. I was always worried about stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, really, uh, really crazy stuff. Like, Every time my parents would go away on vacation or leave the house, you know, as a, a young, young person, I had thoughts like, oh, they're going to die. They're not coming back, you know, and there was no reason for it. There were no traumas or anything like that. Um, but I was just always very anxious. Uh, so I, you know, just kind of continued uh, my life and um, I got okay grades in school. Everything was fairly normal. And I got into high school, and that's when things kind of started to take a turn. Mm -hmm. I found cigarettes first. Mm. I found marijuana second. And then alcohol, specifically Bacardi, rum. And these things taught me that there was something that could help me cope with my anxiety and my insecurity. And so I just kept doing it. Um, and I was hanging out with really great friends, but we did these things together. So our friendship was kind of based on drinking, smoking, being rebellious, mm -hmm. being irresponsible, and being the cool people in high school, you know? So did your parents notice 
these things that you were doing? Did they have any idea at the time that you were smoking, drinking, especially because you were at a very young age? Did they have any clue? Right. So I was about 15 when I started uh, the smoking and the drinking. My parents noticed that I was smoking cigarettes. They didn't really catch on to the drinking and the smoking pot until a bit later on because um, they didn't see anything going on. You know, we, we, we're really good at kind of hiding those things initially. I think they knew that I was doing the normal experimental stuff that mm -hmm. young people usually do. Uh, but the cigarettes were the big thing because I'd always come home smelling like cigarettes and blame my friends. <laughs> and my parents would say, you better not be smoking, you know, because they weren't smokers. And um, that's where it started. That's when I started to lie. Oh, okay. you know, okay. yeah, I learned how to like be manipulative and be dishonest. Mm -hmm. And it kind of like took on its own life form after that mm -hmm. with other things. Yeah. And did it ever occur to you that you had a, family support system? Um, I think for me, I was in such a weird place um, and feeling so low about myself that I didn't realize that I had such a good family support system at the time. I thought that they were trying to stop me from having fun. I thought that I was very sheltered and I thought they were too strict. Mm -hmm. And so I started to kind of distance myself a little bit from my family. Oh, so you started to isolate. Yeah, for sure. Okay, okay. Because what I was thinking about when you said you were depressed, you were very anxious as a child. Mm -hmm. The first thing that came to my mind, like the first question that I thought about, why didn't she go to her mom? Why didn't she go to her dad, her mm -hmm. brother, her sister? You know, why didn't you try to talk to anybody yeah. about it? Yeah, I felt like no one would understand. I was very afraid of my parents. Um, not, not because they were inappropriate in any way, but because uh, they had very high standards in the house and there were rules in that house. And I was afraid of them <laughs> because they laid down the law. And um, in my house, there was a little bit of perfectionism going on. Uh, my mom was a teacher, so she wanted our grades to be really good. She wanted um, us to behave a certain way, um, which any parent would. That's totally normal. But I felt a lot of pressure on myself. And I think that that kept me from speaking up because I already felt so um, down and I, I felt like they didn't like me. I felt like they would be disappointed by me. I had these irrational thoughts from a very early age. Okay. And do you feel like you were more afraid of whether or not they were going to approve you? Yeah, definitely. Oh, okay. I didn't feel like they approved of me at all. I felt like the black sheep, mm. you know, my whole, my whole uh, young life. Mm. Yeah. And I, I think that's what really stops addicts mm -hmm. from reaching out for help. You mm -hmm. know, I think that's what really stops people from asking for help when they know they really need help. Yeah. That invalidation. Absolutely. Um, you don't feel like anyone's really going to understand. Mm -hmm. 
I wish there was someone that could have maybe told me that that was normal. It was normal to have those thoughts and it was okay, but that just wasn't there. So I kept everything inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how did that work out for you? Didn't work out very well. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, ha- what happens? What happens when you stuff everything aside? Oh man, I would, well, I was using and drinking in order to stuff it down even further and avoid it. And um, I was also causing myself so much stress that I would have panic attacks almost on a daily basis. Oh, wow. And that was both in addiction and also in early recovery. I had panic attacks that would wake me up in the middle of my sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's pretty tough. That's like so difficult to go through. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about it, you were using drugs to cope with your feelings. Mm-hmm. But the feelings were still there. You know, you get what yeah. I'm trying to say? Yeah. So it, it, it was actually a temporary satisfaction to a permanent mm-hmm. destruction. Oh yeah. You know? Oh yeah. I think that's what, that's what we call it um, in treatment and in the program actually is, uh, you know, making permanent decisions based on temporary feelings. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, that, that's exactly what it was. It's almost like what they don't tell you is that you start drinking, you start using, you, you think that the feelings are going away. You think you're numbing them, Mm -hmm. but it's actually feeding them. And when you don't have the drug or the substance, it all intensifies, you know, Uh, your anxiety gets even more unmanageable. Everything uh, goes from zero to 60. Mm -hmm. And so it just reinforces you need more and more and more of the drug and of the drink, you know. And that's the thing. With your anxiety increasing, Mm -hmm. everything else intensifies. Yeah. Your negative behavioral pattern, that intensifies. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't only affect you. It also affects your family members. So mm-hmm. if you can look back, Jill, what are some of the things you've did to your family members that you regret? Uh, uh, I could probably go on about this for a very long time. I did a lot of really bad things. Um, but I'm not really ashamed to talk about it now because it's important and people need to know that it it happens and it's okay. Um, I would, uh, be very aggressive and violent with my younger brother, uh, both when I was under the influence and when I wasn't, um, my, I had severe anger problems. And, um, I remember one time grabbing him and holding him up, you know, and he was a, a, a full grown guy at that point for the most part. And I grabbed him and I, I pushed him up against the wall and I got into his face and I, I became something that I didn't recognize. It was almost like I was watching myself. Um, so I, I treated him very badly. Um, he had been, uh, diagnosed with attention deficit disorder at a young age I would take his pills from him um, and lie about it and tell my mother that, you know, uh, the pharmacist must have counted them wrong, you know, mm-hmm. uh, just crazy stuff like that. And she wanted to believe her daughter. So she would call the pharmacist and try to find out. And I knew that I was lying about it. And he knew that I was lying about it, but I was taking my brother's medication. Um, I stole thousands of dollars, um, not just from family, from friends as well. 
Um, uh, in particular, you know, my father, he had like cash in his closet and I would, I would steal hundreds of dollars. I mean, every single day, I don't even know how much it ended up being. And, um, my mother, I stole her debit card. I, I lied to her constantly. Um, she knew something was wrong. She would try to, you know, I was, I was prescribed benzodiazepine at one point because of these anxiety attacks that I was having because I obviously wasn't living a very good life. Yeah. She would hold them for me and, and try to monitor, you know, my, my, my prescription. And, you know, mm-hmm. I would go into the closet and I would steal them and just lie and lie and lie. I put them through hell and my sister was very supportive, but I kept lying to her too. And she had to put my parents back together. Really? Yeah. yeah. So it sounds like you did a lot of things in your past, you know? Yeah. And During, that was just with my family. <laughs> yeah. I could imagine. right? Yeah. <laughs> During the time, did you feel bad or did you have any remorse? Yes. Like what was going through your head at the time? I had incredible remorse. Um, I knew that what I was doing was horrible. I knew it was wrong. I knew that it wasn't me. At the same time, I felt uh, that there was no other way. And I Mm -hmm. felt that maybe I was just a bad kid. Uh, And I had, I, I thought I had mental issues. And, um, I was the outcast and, 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 and the misfit and the problem. And I I kind of justified that and rationalized that in my head. And what we do is we try to make ourselves the victim of the situation. So I would blame my parents. I would blame everybody else for the issue and not really take personal accountability at the time. It wasn't until years later that I started to realize, um, that it really wasn't, anyone's fault Mm -hmm. it was it was my my mind i was very sick and did you ever apologize to them you know oh i I would never do it again oh yeah yeah i mean i remember saying that to my family as i was planning on stealing from them the next day Mm. you know and i would mean it when i said it to them i'm sorry i'm not going to do it again um and it's going to be all right. And I'm, you know, uh, I, I'm going to get better and it's going to, it's going to get better. And I'm so sorry, but you know, that never, that could never happen. And that's the thing. We all have good intentions, you know, Yeah. we want to do the right thing. We try to do the right thing, but something happens, you know, yeah. what happens? Um, I think your the only thing that really explained it to me was learning the neurobiology of addiction behind mm. it. Your pleasure reward system in your brain takes over. Mm. And that pleasure reward system in your amygdala takes over your, you know, rational thought in your prefrontal cortex. That's what gave me my answer. And so even though I knew it was wrong, I couldn't stop myself, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it started with cigarettes and pot and, and drinking, but as life went on, it got considerably worse. And I want to mention this so that people understand, um, you know, I was introduced to Oxycontin. Mm-hmm. I was going into Camden for Oxycontin, for cocaine, 
uh, going to Philadelphia for Oxycontin and cocaine um, and snorting everything I could, you know, up my nose. And uh, it was really, really bad by the end. Um, my dealer, I started a relationship with. He was the one that kind of introduced me to Oxy. I was hooked right from the beginning. It's wow. like heroin in pill form, you know? Wow. And um, he got me hooked, and I thought I was in love with him mm -hmm. because I was in love with the drug, and he supplied it. And over the course of eight months, my addiction took a whole other turn. I must have lost 20 pounds. I looked like a ghost. My girlfriends started to uh, distance themselves from me. They knew something was very wrong. Um, they would confront me. I would, I would flip out on them, uh, in public places. Like I was crazy. I was crazy. And, um, that guy actually ended up overdosing and dying. Wow. Uh, and I was such a coward. I didn't even go to see him in the hospital because on some level, when something like that happens, you kind of feel like you played a role in their death. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So, um, I mentioned that because I know that's happened to a lot of people. And um, I feel like it's important to kind of touch on. Yeah, it's, it's very important. And a lot of people, they still feel guilty because of it. You know, I've, I've come across a lot of people who have lost friends or family members from drug overdoses. Mm -hmm. And they feel responsible for the deaths of their family members or friends. Mm -hmm. And it sounds to me like, you can relate to that, you know? Yeah. I mean, definitely. I, I have very, very personal raw experience with it. And I can tell you, I mean, uh, when I had to go to treatment, um, when my parents found out, and I, I mean, they knew something was up, but they actually saw me and what was going on. Um, you know, when they sent me to treatment 11 years ago down here to Florida, um, my mom would call my girlfriends. She called a few of my girlfriends. I didn't know this. And she asked them like, why didn't you tell me what was going on with my daughter? You know, like it scared her so much. She realized I could have died wow. at any time. And, you know, everyone kind of like points fingers and, and they're trying to understand. And, and it's so hard to understand if you're not an addict, my parents would blame themselves did I do something wrong? What did I do to her? You know, um, but I came very, very close to, to losing this battle and to losing my life. I could have died many, many times, mm -hmm. not just from overdose. I was with very bad people um, in a lot of very bad situations. And I, I'm very fortunate, but I've seen a lot of what it can do. I've been to a lot of funerals um, of friends that I've used with. You know, wow. you've lost a lot of people. Absolutely. You've lost a lot of people, Jill. A lot. A lot of people. Mm -hmm. And from from your story, I know I know that you can talk about this all day. <laughs> you know, I know I know this is a powerful story of yours. But based on what I've heard so far, you always knew that or felt like you had a problem. Mm -hmm. You always felt different. You struggled with anxiety from a very young age. You struggled with depression from a very young age. You tried to fit in with the crowd, you know? Mm -hmm. You tried to fit in. You didn't like yourself, mm -mm. you know? You probably didn't know yourself. 
because that kind of goes hand in hand with it. Yeah. A lot of times when people don't like themselves, they don't know who they really are, you Mm -hmm. know, an identity crisis kicks in. Mm -hmm. And I hope our listeners can see why people use drugs. Drugs doesn't, drugs doesn't just come out of nowhere. You know, people use drugs to cope with depression, anxiety, to cope with life, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They don't know any better, but at that time, it's the only thing they know. And how do you, how do you, how do you feel about that? Well, it's so true. I mean, you're hitting it right on the head. And I think that that is exactly what people need to know. At the time when you don't have other resources, when you have loved ones or friends telling you, why don't you just stop? You have to understand that that goes through our minds on a daily basis. We're telling ourselves the same thing, but we can't stop. Mm -hmm. It has control over you mentally, physically, emotionally, in every way possible. And there's underlying issues that contribute to it. I didn't know until later on that there was something within myself that I had to heal Mm -hmm. so that I wasn't reaching for these external things. There was something internal going on with me. And it has a lot to do with self-image. It has a lot to do with not knowing who you are, not knowing what you're capable of. I think you're right on about that. And sometimes you have to go through these horrifying situations. You have to go through this struggle to find out what you are capable of. Exactly. There is always a reason for struggle. At the end of the tunnel, there is success. Mm -hmm. But you just got to stay in there. You got to stay in the game. You got to keep fighting. You can't give up. So in this next segment, we're going to talk about your life in recovery. We're going to talk about how you was able to beat this disease. Stay tuned. Welcome back. In the last segment, we spoke about Jill's consequences of her addiction. In this segment, she's going to talk about her recovery and how she was able to do it. So Jill, what's the secret? Here's the bottom line. You just do it. I mean, really, that's what it is at the end of the day. People are giving you suggestions left and right. I went to treatment, okay, and they told me, this is what you got to do. Here's the steps. Here's how it works. Don't do this. Do this. Don't do this. And you just do it or don't do it, regardless, you know, depending on the, the situation. You do what you're told. For me, personally, the thing that worked for me is I was so, uh, I didn't trust myself at all. And I was so scared that I was going to use again. In fact, I knew that I was going to use again. So in order to protect myself from using again, I started working in treatment and and sober living houses immediately as soon as I got out of treatment. 
that's what kept me green, man. And I still work in treatment today. So how many times have you been to treatment? Did you get clean on your first attempt? I got clean on my first attempt. Wow. Mm-hmm. And everyone told me that I wasn't going to be able to do it. And people thought that, you know, I was clueless and I was going to relapse again. And I think that that kind of motivated me because I am very competitive and I like to prove people wrong. So like the first couple of years, I was like staying sober out of spite because I wanted to go back and work at the treatment center that I got clean at, you know, Um, because I wanted to show them that I could do it. And that's exactly what I did two years later. I went back with my resume and started working for them. So what are some of the challenges that you face in recovery? Like, if you can think about it, like, what did you struggle with? What I struggled with the most was delaying instant gratification. I wanted, because I wasn't doing the drugs anymore or doing anything else, the very first thing that I wanted to do and that I did do is I got involved in relationships that I shouldn't have. Uh, I, you know, would break curfew a little bit here and there. I would, you know, hang out with people that probably weren't doing like the right thing all the time. But at the end of the day, I didn't pick up. I didn't use because I really didn't want to. Um, I watched a lot of other people relapse too. And I saw what happened and that scared me. I don't know. I mean, for a lot of people, it doesn't scare them, I guess. But for me, it scared me. I saw a lot of shit go down, like in sober living and stuff uh, and in treatment too. And I just was not, I wasn't about that. Plus I had family members that set boundaries with me and they told me, like my parents told me, it's one and done. We are never doing this again with you. If you use again, you are out. And that was another thing that kind of like kept me going, you know, because I didn't want to lose them. I love my family. And of of course, right? Mm -hmm. And we all do. We love Mm -hmm. our family, right? So it sounds like your mom and dad were very strict. Mm -hmm. They set boundaries. Strong. They weren't enabling your behavior. Not at all. So what was it like? What was it like for you? It was really scary because... um, I wasn't able to, I think, maybe take advantage of my situation, maybe like a lot of other people are nowadays. There's a lot of enabling going on now. Um, I wasn't able to do that. So what I had to do was I really had to struggle, you know, and I had to stay sober at the same time because I had no other choice. And that's the only way that I get things done is there has to be no other option, you know. Uh, So for me, I had to find a job. I had to be, you know, out there hitting the pavement, like hustling, making money, like in the right way, uh, eating ramen noodles at night that weren't even mine. You know what I'm saying? Because I <laughs> didn't even have any money or anything to show for myself. Um, like I would come home from job searching when I, I lived at one of the first sober houses that I lived at. I was kicked out of my first one. We'll get to that. <laughs> but, um, you know, my feet were bleeding when I came home from going on job interviews all day. You know, I was in, I was in, you know, all dressed up like, you know, in, in, in my Jersey, you know, couture or whatever. And, um, you know, my feet were bleeding. And that to me was like, I never worked. I mean, I, I've worked hard, but like, to me, it was like, that was serious, man. I was sober and I really wanted to make something happen. And my parents weren't there to like bail me out. So um, I made it happen. I made it happen. I had to. You just did it. So it seems like you were in a position where it was either you change your life or you die. Yep. That's it. Your back was against the wall. That's it. Right? Yep. Yep. 
The only way out was for you to get clean, for you to take advantage of your life, and for you to get sober. Yeah. Other than that, where would you be? I think that uh, if I hadn't been set up in the situation that I was set up in, I probably would have gotten caught up in the Florida shuffle. I'd be using down here or I'd be back at home using. There was a situation actually where my parents came down to visit me while I was at uh, my first halfway house. I got kicked out because I was the house manager there and I was messing with a guy and I wasn't supposed to be. And a girl actually OD'd in our house and I wasn't there because I was, you know, doing things I shouldn't have been doing. Um, And so my parents were down here visiting and they found out that basically, I mean, I was thrown out of this halfway house and so I was homeless and my parents were flying out back to New Jersey the next day. And I said, I guess I'll just come home with you guys. And they said, oh, no, you're not. Mm-hmm. And they left and they knew that I really didn't have like, you know, like they knew I had to just figure it out. And that's what they told me. You need to figure this out. We are not taking you home. And that was the defining moment for me. I think that that's what really did it. Wow. Yeah. And what amazes me is that you figured it out mm-hmm. on your first treatment attempt. So what can you tell people addicts who are struggling with sobriety, who are in and out of the system, who are in and out of the cycle, who have been to 10 treatments, 11 treatments over and over and over again, and they just can't seem to get a grip on their life. What would you tell them? I would tell them that most likely the fact that they keep coming back in is probably due to one of two things. Either you just don't want to struggle and you don't want to make stuff happen for you because you don't believe it'll happen for you and you're afraid. So you go back to the same cycle over and over and over again. Uh, Or you haven't gotten to that point where you're really um, not being enabled or uh, you're in a situation where you need to have your back against the wall. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people just don't have that nowadays. 10 years ago when I was in treatment, 11 years ago, years ago, it was completely different. I mean, we were in there with people like real hardcore, uh, you know, family cut them off, like that kind of thing. That doesn't happen so much anymore nowadays. It's a little bit different. Parents are a little bit more enabling. They don't know what to do. So I would say there's either an underlying issue that you're not facing and not dealing with, or you're just not done. And you know what? We change when the pain is great enough. And so hopefully the pain is great enough for you soon and you start to turn things around. Okay, okay. That's understandable. That's really understandable. You don't change unless your back is against the wall. You know, I often hear people say, oh, he's not changing because he didn't hit rock bottom yet. Mm. What was rock bottom for you? Rock bottom for me was when the day before I went to treatment, Uh, when everything came to a head, my father knew that something was wrong. I had come home from work that day. I'd already been fired from a job for drug use. Um, And my second job suspended me because I was acting like a psycho um, and yelling at everybody. So I came home from work and my dad had just had it at this point. My mom was there too. And my dad grabbed my purse from out from under my arm and he dumped it out. And so all of my baggies and drug paraphernalia came out. 
right there in the kitchen. My mom saw it. I don't think anyone else was home. I think it was just the two of them. And I looked over at my mother and she had her head in her hands and she was sobbing uncontrollably. And still to this day, when I think about it, my heart breaks because I realized in that moment that um, what I was doing was just, it just killed her. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and when she realized the severity of it, something in her kind of shattered that day. And my father was so enraged because he had so much hope for me and I was special and I think I'm still special, but what I mean is his hopes for, for me were very different and he, he's Italian. He smacked me upside the head and I swear that smack changed my consciousness and I said to myself, I'm done. I am never doing this again. And that moment is still as vivid to me as it was 11 years ago. I think about it every day. And that was it. That was it. I think everybody needs a moment like that. You know? That was it. Mm -hmm. Everybody needs a moment like that. Mm -hmm. It's like, if you don't have a moment like that, What's going to motivate you to change, you know? Oh, God. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like a lot of addicts, they have a safety net. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. A safety net. Mm-hmm. Oh, their mom is always going to be there for them. Their dad is always going to be there for them. No matter what they do, no matter how bad the situation is, their mom and dad is always going to rescue them. Mm-hmm. And once you have that safety net, it's going to be harder for you to beat that disease, you know, it's going to be much difficult for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my safety net had to be the women of AA and NA. I worked all of the programs, by the way, AA, NA, CA, CODA. I mean, I did all of them. Um, the women there were my safety net. I had to be surrounded by them. I had to be doing service. I had to be working in a sober living house. I managed a sober living house for about three years, my first three years in recovery. I worked in treatment. That's what my safety net was. That was my safety. I knew if I was surrounded by other people that had more clean time than me, that I would be okay Mm -hmm. Uh, because they were going to hold me accountable. I don't think a lot of people um, have had that privilege. I was very fortunate to have that opportunity and that privilege. Indeed, you were. You know, you shared a lot of successful strategies, a lot of solutions. What were some of the biggest coping skills that you used back then and you still use today? Um, One coping skill that I learned because I still struggled with anxiety and depression. Um, I still do, actually, um, to this day, but it's much more manageable than it was. Um, I had to use a lot of grounding techniques uh, when I would have panic attacks, when I would um, have anxiety and racing thoughts. I was in school for, you know, I finished my degree in recovery and I, I got my bachelor's in psychology and human development. And so what I would do was I wanted to find out how to fix myself, right? So everything I was doing in school, I would apply to myself. Um, it was like I was my first patient. And um, I would kind of therapize myself, even though I don't recommend this. I should have had a therapist um, later on down the road. But 
I would apply some coping skills and just deep breathing Mm -hmm. um, and not acting on impulse, waiting for my feelings to pass until I could make a rational decision, Um, learning how to delay instant gratification and talking to people about what was going on. You know, for many years early in recovery, I still wasn't talking about what was really going on. Um, And what happens is, it all kind of builds up and then you get to a point where, I mean, for me, Ben, I was, I was actively suicidal by the, by the end. And this is sober. I mean, this was about two or three years ago, you know? Um, So, you know, I'm walking around, oh, I have eight or nine years and like everything is hunky dory. Well, no, because I didn't deal with a lot of underlying issues. So even though I was using some coping skills, the meetings and, and breathing and talking to people and things like this, I was missing a very important aspect. And I think therapy is a very important aspect. Mm -hmm. And so I reached out for help. I got on the phone with somebody and I think what's made all the difference in the world. And I'm sharing this because I hope that someone is listening and understands that um, if you reach out to someone and you just talk about everything that's on your mind, talk about everything that's bothering you. um, The therapist is going to validate that for you and it's going to be life changing. You know, I went from wanting to kill my wanting to kill myself just a few years ago to um, living a life that I never imagined I would. I mean, I am engaged to the greatest man in the world. I just brought home my pug puppy, Joey. I get to do this podcast with you. Um, I get to work at a treatment center. You know, I, I get to finish my master's degree in forensic psychology. I'm doing things that I never would have done. So um, I think the bottom line when it comes to coping is just being able to just talk about everything. Yeah. Talking about your problems, venting, mm-hmm. outsourcing your stress, yeah, getting it out instead of holding it in. Mm-hmm. That's one of the best coping strategies mm-hmm. that anybody can do. You know, find somebody to talk to, mm-hmm. a close friend, a family member. Just get it out there. And as you guys can see, it helps. It helps. It helps a lot. And there's someone out there listening that is really struggling. I'm sure with their identity, their self-image, their feelings. I I want you to know that whatever it is, whatever it is that you think you can't share with someone else, whatever it is that you're so afraid people will judge you for, there are entire populations of people that are just like you and that will tell you, hey, that's all right. That's normal. That's okay. That's totally fine. You're one of us and we can help you. And I'm not just talking about people in recovery. I'm talking about people that are dealing with sexual identification, sexual orientation. That's a major one. You know, um, be 
whatever it is that you are. Don't hide. Be in your truth. There is a market for everything. People love you. There are so many people out there that are just like you. Um, Break free and just be happy. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Be yourself. Yeah. Stop comparing yourselves to other people. You are beautiful in your own way. You know, beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. Mm. Be yourself. Mm. Live your life. Be happy. You don't have to live up to anybody's standards. You just got to live up to your own. Set your own standards. Do something different. Love your life. You only got one life to live, guys. Mm-hmm. Jill, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. Listeners, supporters, thank you so much for tuning in to our podcast. Stay tuned every Monday as we continue to share success stories about addiction, stories about mental health, and ways that you can change your life.